we're continuing our series through the book of John. If you're new with us in that, we've been going through the Gospel of John in this series called Simply Jesus and looking at his ministry, life on earth. The, the Gospel of John in particular is focused in on who he is as the Son of God, and we've been looking at his claims of divinity and his ministry. And as we've journeyed over the last several weeks, we found that his public ministry of persecution has turned towards a private ministry, if you will, towards his disciples. He's telling his disciples a lot of things. And we've been looking at those over chapter 15 and now entering into 16. A lot of red letters of instruction and then what's coming. He'll pray for his disciples, his people, all relevant stuff for the church, the family of God. And so last week, and I want to remind us of this as we prepare ourselves to read this next text where we were last week, is Jesus has just instructed the church, his people, the disciples, that the world is going to persecute. The world is going to hate them because of him. And it's because of their ignorance, their knowledge of God. They don't know God. They, they are against Jesus. All, is man, uh, all of man in his rebellion and is, uh, in sin is against God. And so you have to have that as a context here before what we read. These disciples have just been told they're going to go out, and Jesus is now going to tell them he's leaving. He's leaving them the helper, but the world, it's going to be tough, and he wants them to go on mission. And so we pick up in, in chapter 16. There's a long text that I'm covering in chapter 16 here, verse 5, all the way through 33, but I'm going to just read verses 12 through 15 and then skip ahead to 31 through 33, and I'll kind of work back through it um, as we go. So this is what it says in John 16, 12 through 15, and then skipping ahead to verse 31. Jesus said this, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now skipping ahead to verse 31. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I want you to listen to this verse here. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. With that, I invite you to pray. Um, assuming that you do that, every time I ask, uh, I'd ask you to do it again. Just pray that God would speak to your heart, that he would speak through me, that, that his words would penetrate your heart. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do praise you for your faithfulness to us, that you reveal yourself to us through your word, that you desire for us to know you, it's truth. Father, I thank you for the Spirit, as we'll see in this text, the helper that Jesus promised, that we have this Spirit inside of us, all who know Christ, who have been born again. And Father, I thank you for the presence of Jesus, the realness of him, and the victory that we find in his name. May all glory be brought to him, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, so I want you to see right away in this text that Jesus is giving his disciples two gifts. He is 
commanded them to go on mission. He is setting them up, preparing them, if you will, saying, this is going to be tough. The world is going to have trouble. The world's going to be persecuting you, oppressing you just as it was me. But I want to give you two gifts as you go out. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to to get these things and I want you to use them to be prepared. Much like any of us, if you've ever gone on a journey Have you ever been given a gift? Maybe you've gone to camp or maybe you've gone on a mission or maybe you've gone on vacation and somebody has given you a gift and said, here, you're going to need this if you're going to go on this journey. I've grown up and there's probably too many examples that I've been given tools or gifts to go and do something with. When I was younger, my parents gave me things, you know, even I can think as a, as a young camper, hey, you need this, this, and this. You're going to need this if you're going to go out. You need this flashlight if you're going to do this. Now, my brother, uh, my older brother is notorious for giving really good practical gifts at Christmas time. You know, like the best gifts everybody knows this is like t-shirts and underwear, right, at Christmas. But they're, they're super practical. But my brother has given us especially us guys, these really practical tools. Like one year he gave us this uh, universal socket wrench. It was great because you don't have to have all the individual sockets to do stuff with and giving us work gloves, just really tangible things, knowing that we like to do woodworking, knowing that all of us like to use our hands and fix things and build things. And so it's much like that. Jesus is saying, here, I'm going to give you tools. Now with all tools or gifts, They have function for the mission. And I want to focus on verses 13 and 33 primarily, these two gifts given to us in the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ himself. I know Jesus is giving the gifts, but he is one of those gifts. He gives us the helper, and then he gives us himself and all that he brings. We need to know, though, their purpose and function. I think of good gifts that I've gotten, like a pocket knife. It is kind of like that. You get this pocket knife, and it has many functions to it. You open it up, the scissors are there, the saw tool, the knife, the little screwdriver tool, all of those things. And Jesus gives the church, the people of God, this tool. And he says there's different functions, there's different things that come with this. So I want to give you a brief outline And then I want to dive more deeply. I don't always do this, but I want to kind of give you a prep on where we're going. In the Holy Spirit, as a gift, specifically we'll see in this text that he gives the Holy Spirit the gift of preaching, counseling, and discipling. He says, when this helper comes, he will be preaching the message of the gospel. He will be comforting and counseling people towards himself. And he will bring truth towards you in your path of discipleship. The second gift he gives is Jesus himself. And what we know in this from the text is he gives Jesus' personal presence. He shows himself that I will be present with you on this journey. He then proceeds to tell the disciples, I will give you my provision. Ask and you will get all that you pray for and ask for the Father will give you. And then he finally gives, him, gives them this, his victorious position, reminding them, of what he has done and what he is about to do, rather, knowing that now for us. And so we're going to dive in here, this gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, out of the Godhead anyways, the one that is least talked about in the church. Now, I know we mention the Spirit, but is often the person of the Godhead that is most misunderstood and almost, if you will, kind of elusive. 
And in many churches, it has a spectrum of what do we believe about the Spirit, whether it's a super charismatic, if you will. There are churches that are more charismatic and charisma, that word. They're more spiritual, and I put that in quotes because they're not necessarily more spiritual. They just think they operate in the gifts of the Spirit more than others. And there's a spectrum of belief in the Spirit, you know, whether you speak in tongues or whether you don't, or whether there's emotion created in an atmosphere of worship or whether there's not. And the Spirit is, is kind of this, as Francis Chan, he wrote a book about this great book. He says it's kind of the forgotten God. The, the, we don't talk about the Spirit a lot. We say walk by the Spirit, but for many believers, it's like, I don't really know what that looks like in my life. But the Holy Spirit is truly, and first and foremost, as Jesus said, it's a helper that he left with his people. It is the part of the Godhead. He is a person. It's why we know he's real and how he can feel he's working. I've often had kids come up to me at Awana and say, how do you know God's real? And I always reply now because I've seen him. I've felt him. I've, I've watched him work. And that is the Spirit of God dwelling in the believer and working in the lives of people in the church. That's a tangible expression. Now, we can't see, if you will, the Spirit, but we can see the work of the Spirit. And you and I know this if we've ever felt like alone or, or we've, ate, we've had the Spirit help us in conviction or guide us towards truth, as this text says. And I would offer this as a disclaimer in church movements, Eva, as I kind of allude to. There are some churches that believe that, that in order for you to have the Spirit, truly you must be speaking in tongues in the Spirit. That simply can't be true, just what Paul taught. That, that gift is given to some, not all. And so that, that, that idea that the Spirit could only be present in those who speak in tongues of the Spirit is, is an impossibility. It's not biblical. But the Holy Spirit is not just a mystical power. He is a person, just like Jesus is a person. And you have to know that as we go in. He is not some floating fog or ghost-like figure. And I kind of think it's unfortunate in some ways. I'm not against the King James at all in this way, but it's kind of unfortunate that the King James made that translation of the Holy Ghost. Because in our culture, at least, remember like Casper, the friendly ghost? That's how some people look at the Spirit. Like it's this elusive, like, like ghost-type figure. The Holy Spirit is a person, part of the Godhead, and, and Jesus is, is delivering this spirit, saying this helper will be left. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you have to remember the context of what Jesus is saying. These disciples are fearing his departure. All right? The Old Testament, God's spirit dwelt in the tabernacle, in the Ark of the Covenant. That was God's spirit. And when Jesus comes along and when he dies on the cross and the veil is torn, that holy of holies, God's presence now is made available to all people. And so while God contained his spirit, if you will, in the Old Testament, it was not in people, it was on people for seasons, but in dwelling in the Ark of the Covenant. Now in Christ, we know that the spirit of God, we read this earlier, this mystery that Matt read about dwells in us, Christ in us, the hope of of glory. And so these disciples are fearing his departure. They've walked with Jesus. They don't want to be left alone. And so Jesus's words here as he's talking about leaving in verse 6, they've brought sorrow. And so he's going to tell them, you're not going to be alone. I'm going to give you the gift. So the disciples must have been greatly encouraged and comforted to hear as we are that Jesus would send this helper to minister to them 
when he left. And not only would the Holy Spirit come to dwell in him, but he would also never leave. The Apostle Paul said that Christ in us, the hope of glory, as I quoted in Colossians 1.27, and Christ promised his spirit would reside in us in John 14.17, a couple chapters earlier, and that he would reside permanently. Jesus didn't tell the disciples that he would come back and leave again and keep doing that, nor did he say he would leave and be back in 2,000 years. That would have been discouraging had he said that. I'm going to leave. This is going to be really hard for like a, lot, a long time, thousands of years. I'm not going to have any communication, any presence with you. That would be terrible. He's not saying that. As he gives them this word in Matthew 28, he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We know the Great Commission. I'll never leave you. I'll be with you. And the Spirit is that presence, that person that he has left to be with us as we are on mission. Of course, we know that the fulfillment of Christ's promise and the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. In Acts 2, you can find that. The Spirit at that moment came and dwelt within disciples, teaching them all about Christ. So Christ was saying, I'm going away to the Father, yet I'll come to you in the form of my Spirit to dwell in you. And that's a wonderful promise that every believer has. There's no such thing as a Christian, a true born-again follower of Jesus who does not have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in them. The Holy Spirit dwells in every believer. Paul, in fact, reminded the church in Corinth, he said, do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, here's where I add to that and take a little time out. People in the church are confused about this too. When Paul says, do you not know that you are the temple, the Spirit dwells in you? He's saying, the Old Testament temple, you are that now. So the Spirit of God dwells in you. So here's a couple just brief reflections from what that means. My kids know I do it to them. I do it to often people in the church when they say, we're going to go up to the church or this is the church. This is just a building where we're in. And people in our culture look at like buildings on hills with steeples and crosses and say, well, that's where God can be met. And I would say, well, then you don't understand the New Testament because we are the temple of God. People are the church. This is just a building. And sometimes I'll text people, like if, if we're going to meet somewhere or you can come up to the church and I'll always put building, almost without fail. You can come to the church building. This is just a building. The church, the people of God, have the Spirit in them. We are indwelled by the Spirit. It also, another way that flushes itself out was when people get together to pray and they ask God's Spirit to show up. Now I'm sitting in a prayer circle always wondering, why are we asking if God's Spirit's in us? You know, Not that we don't want God's Spirit to be a part of what we're doing, but if I, a believer, have the Holy Spirit, I don't need to ask Him to come. He's already present. Does that make sense? There's a couple misunderstandings that are confusing. One of them in our culture, the building, is the place we meet God. And the other, like we're asking the Spirit as believers. Those cannot be true if the Spirit truly dwells within us. And I hope the question or the answer to Paul's question resides for you as a believer today, if you know Christ. Do you not know that the Spirit of God dwells within you? Jesus has given this a gift that you can be like confident in and go in mission confidently in. And specifically, this gift, as I said, has three purposes given in John 16. The first one we see beginning to unfold itself in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. 
For I do not go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Spirit's coming will bring about the delivery to the whole world of the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' ministry was in the Middle East, and it was contained, if you will. We know that once those disciples got the mission and had the Spirit, they pushed out. The church was persecuted, and actually God used it to spread the gospel, and it continues to spread around the globe. I mean, we just had a family stand up here that are doing that work by the Spirit's aid in the Czech Republic. It's spreading around the globe, and Jesus said it's to the advantage that the Spirit dwells in people now, and this mission goes out to preach like a preacher would, the gospel. With Jesus leaving now, the Holy Spirit's job is to carry the mission of the gospel in the lives and through the lives of believer in the ch- believers in the church for the gospel to spread. So if you've come here and say, why do, why do we always talk about like church planning and missions and why are we always bringing up missionaries before us? For that purpose. It's our mission to continue to multiply the church and we want to see it multiplied And the Holy Spirit aids in that preaching of the gospel. The second thing the Holy Spirit does is he provides counseling. And I want to say like everybody should be in counseling. Everybody who is a believer is in counseling because look what it says. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The three things that are brought about, he's going to convict, he's going to show righteousness, and he's going to show judgment. Jesus spells out each one's sin because, as we've said, the world is ignorant. Friends, it is a good thing when you and I are convicted by the Spirit. Often I'll preach and somebody say, like, they want to make eye contact. That's not me. That's the Spirit of God convicting. It's a good thing because conviction draws us to the Father in repentance. When the world is convicted of sin, it looks at God and turns back in repentance. That's a good thing. So it does for the unbeliever who has finally made, just in our evangelism class, it was said this morning, what's the Kind of the first way, the step of explaining the gospel is an awareness of your sin. When somebody comes to Christ for the first time, they're finally aware of their status before God, that they're disconnected, there's no relationship because of their sin, and that awareness turns people. Conviction of sin brings sinners to God and turns people's eyes towards Jesus. The Spirit moves in that way. The Spirit also shows up in righteousness, teaches us the right way. With Jesus leaving, the disciples are going to be left. Well, what do we do? Of course, we have the Word of God now. The disciples were authoring that over time by the Spirit's aid and the letters to the churches. You and I have the Word of God as instruction, and the Spirit shows us the right way. He will continue to show us the right things to do, which is why, and I've said this before, when I sit with somebody and I counsel them, and I encourage you all to do the same when people ask you for advice, biblical advice, I never tell people what to do. I might have opinions when people say, hey, what should I do? And I'll never tell them. Why do I never tell them? Because that is the Spirit's job. I can give them biblical counsel and say, this is what the scriptures say. Now, if there's some cases where Somebody's saying, hey, should I forgive them? I have that in the scripture. Yes, you should forgive them. But in terms of like, I don't know which direction or go, or I have this option or this, the Spirit of God will guide in that. 
He will bring about the right way in accordance with his word. I've said this too. People that come and say, I believe this is God's will. And I say, have you prayed about it? Well, no. Have you read God's word about it? Well, no. I'll always challenge people that way and say, you got, you got to do that because the spirit and the word work together in bringing about what is right, the righteousness. And finally, the spirit will bring judgment. Verse 11, because the ruler of this world has been judged. The Spirit's presence, listen to this, friends. The Spirit's presence in the world says something to the enemy. When the Spirit of God dwells within the believer and the believer then goes out in mission, it says something to the enemy. It says, you now stand condemned. What Jesus did on the cross, he defeated sin and death. You have no hold on me. We sang about it. That's what it says. The devil has no hold on Jesus. The cross is the decisive moment of judgment for the world, and the Spirit brings that to the world because of victory on the cross. Satan stands in judgment and awaits final judgment, and the Spirit brings that about when the gospel goes out and people, the world sits in judgment because of their sin, because of what Jesus did, and the Spirit brings that. As if to say, when you carry that out in the world, the enemy has no hold it's been decided. The judgment has. Now, we live in the persecution of the moments, and Satan will deceive us to think that he has victory and that he wins. The battle is real, but it's decisive. The Spirit brings that kind of judgment to the world. That's the counseling ministry. It also brings about the discipling ministry. Jesus has more to say in verse 12. I still have many things. Now, remember the context. He's speaking this to his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Jesus had more to say. There's always more to learn. He left the disciples without all the answers, but he promised to leave a helper. And verse 13 is that promise that he made to the apostles as the assurance when he spoke it there as a special future ministry of the Spirit which will bring complete to completion the truth of what Jesus wanted his disciples to know. The Spirit will unfold, if you will, all that is to come, including the revelatory, at this time it hadn't happened, remember, the revelatory and redemptive work of Jesus in his death ministry and resurrection, or ministry, death, and resurrection, sending the spirit of the kingdom and the consummation of life and judgment at the end. And you must understand that in the moment it applies to the disciples, but it has application for us. The spirit continues to do that for us. And I want to make this very important claim or note, there is no new revelation. So for us to say the spirit will continue to reveal new things of God, that has ceased with the closed canon of the scripture. The Spirit's not going to bring about new things. So many false religions, prophets of the world in false religions say, God's spoken to me and I have more. That's not the case. The Bible is clear in that. Jesus has given us all. The word has given us all we need to know. But the Spirit continues to guide us in new truth. And specifically for the young believer, continues to teach and show and disciple Friends, we listen, and there are so many lies in the world, but it is the Spirit that you and I need to tune our ears toward all the time. 
There's so many lies that I'm sure even represented here in this gathering of people that you have listened to even this week that is not truth, but it's falsehood. And when you come before God's word and you come before the spirit, Jesus is saying the spirit is going to guide you in all truth. And he's going to declare things to you that are true about himself and the father. These are the things that we need to tune our ear to. This is the gift of the Spirit. The second gift that we have, and I'll cover these in summary later, is the gift of Jesus Christ himself. Picking up in verse 16. Jesus is going on and he's saying, a little while you'll, you will see me no longer. He's prepping himself for his departure and his disciples, and again in a little while, and you will see me. So he said, you're not going to see me, and then you're going to see me. So some of his disciples said to another, what, what is he talking about in verse 17? So said to another, a little while you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me because I'm going to the Father. So they're saying in verse 18, what does he mean by a little while? I'm going to stop there. And many of us ask this in our journey of faith, don't we? When we go through trials. What does Jesus mean by a little while? I'm sure his disciples feel the angst and anxiousness of that moment. He just said a little while. What does that mean? They want to know, right? They do not want to be left alone. You and I, often God brings trials into our lives and he says just a little while. Often you and I live lives and we just ache. Our bodies groan as the scriptures say. We want to go home. We're not of this world. We looked at that last week. We just want to go home. And Jesus says a little while. Just a little while. He who is leaving, he is telling us he'll return. And of all the resources made available to the church in its mission, none is comparable to this. Jesus himself is among us in that. The mission is his, not ours. We go forth not as much for him, and I want you to note this, not as much for him as with him. And because of that, it means joy. I want you to know that, believer. In a world that feels lonely, you are not alone. I want you to know that, unbeliever here today, that with Christ, you will never be alone. You go with Jesus. Many parents say, many parents say this to your kids, and maybe you've said this to your kids, when your kids do something really dumb, you say, would, would you do that if Jesus was with you? Would you say that if Jesus was standing right next to you? Would you watch that if Jesus was sitting right next to you? I think it's another misunderstanding of the church. Jesus is very present with the believer. So parents that say that need to be corrected and say, you know what? He is. He promised for the believer, if those who know Christ, he is very present in that. Very present. He said it in Colossians when we read it, Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's not something that comes and goes. Jesus is present in our walk, our low moments, our, our rebellious moments. Now, we may not, might not be walking in the Spirit, but Jesus is present, very present in the life of the believer. Remember, they did not want to be left alone. And a promise is Jesus says, I will not leave you or forsake you. And so, so many people think Jesus is like in and out of us. The Spirit is like in and out of us as we walk, and it's simply not the case. Jesus uses this little while, you will see me. What does this all mean? He then proceeds to give an illustration. As you stop there and say, well, does he mean he's going to the cross and then he'll reappear after his resurrection to them? Yes. Does he mean that he's going to the cross, will reappear, and then he will come back when he, after he ascends? Yes. So it's not and or, but both. Jesus is saying, 
for them specifically then, I'm going to come back after I'm raised from the dead, spend some time with you, then I'll return to the Father. He says to us today, I am going to return for you, but you have my spirit. So it's a little while, and we know our 80 years feels like a long time, but Jesus says your life is just a little while. It's a vapor, the Bible says. We think it's so long, but it's really just this little blip. And so he uses this illustration in verses 20 and 21 of an illustration of a woman giving labor. He says, you're going to have sorrow and anguish. It's going to feel sad and hard. And there's going to be pushing and all of this stuff. But your sorrow will turn to joy. That's going to come about through this labor, if you will. You'll see this tiny baby. You'll see this and you'll rejoice. He uses this illustration of pain that's turned to joy. And it is our hope for them, it was hope in the resurrection. For us, it's still hope in the resurrection. That Jesus has died, been buried, and raised again, and we will see him again. That new life, that we can go through really difficult things and feel like Jesus is not with us at times, and that's real. And I'm not going to pretend that there's moments that you don't feel like he's not present. But what he is saying is, I am present. He says it's going to feel like that. Remember the gift of the Spirit. That's not truth. That's just a feeling. That's why when somebody tells me, I feel like God is not with me, I always say that is just a feeling. It's not a truth. Because God is lying if it is. He's not being truthful. He gives us truth and he catapults us by his presence to his return, to anticipate it. Verse 22 So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus offers us himself, his very presence. The second thing he offers us is his provision. John Calvin says it this way, We have the heart of God as soon as we place before him the name of his Son. You have the heart of God as soon as you place before him the name of his son. Jesus focuses in here to the disciples on prayer. Here's what I'll offer, communication to the Father. He is opening up the door of the Father's resource and provision. Look at verse 23 and 24. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus is shifting here, right? He's going to leave. He's shifting his disciples. There will be a helper who comes. I will not be tangibly with you, but I will be present in spirit. And you can, you can ask anything you want of the Father. Now, a couple notes about this. I've said it often. God is not a vending machine. So when we ask God, we do it in accordance to his will. This is not about the prosperity gospel and asking God for health and prosperity and all the things that your flesh, your heart wants. It's not about you not asking in enough faith because we see scriptural examples of Paul asking, pleading in the name of Jesus to have Christ or to have God remove the thorn in his flesh and and God's answer was no. But this is the resources God has made available. Many of us sit there and say, why even pray then? God is opening up his resource, saying, I'm present, and you have all that you need to accomplish my mission. Now, here's a special note that I make, and I, and I hear this often, and I just want all of us to be conscious about it. 
When people pray, you ought to pray in the name of Jesus. Now, I want like to be sensitive to some of us. Some people say in your name or in his name. I've always tried to pray in the name of Jesus. We're instructed to do so here. So when you pray in Jesus's name, not in his name or God's name, say his name. There's something about that that makes the enemy shudder. And there is an instruction for us to do that. We must pray in that way. Whatever you ask in the Father, in my name, he will give to you. For the believer to know that and trust that there is a God who said, I've given you a mission, I've given you a helper, all that you ask in my name, all that is in my will, I will provide for you. What a promise to us who are lonely and fearful at times, who walk through uncertain things, and God says, I'm here, I'm present, I want to provide for you. Yes, will I, will I, will I, say all the things you want me to say or provide all the ways that I want you to, to, me, for me to provide and saying yes to everything you ask, he might not do that in the way. And I don't know all the, the answers to that question. We've prayed for healing in Josiah's life and we've seen it in different ways. And we trust that God's doing something, but all the time when we go to the throne of grace, what we are met with is God's overwhelming presence and provision. All the time, everything we need. Lastly, we see that Jesus gives us his victorious position. Skipping down to verse 32 and 33. After this back and forth encounter with the disciples and figures of speech, and then finally understanding, he says, Behold, this hour is coming, indeed has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home. He's telling them, this is going to be scattered about. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus does not dance around the trouble part. And so many of us are just blindsided by all the troubles, especially young new believers who get hit with a bunch of like trials. He's not sidestepping this. He says, you're going to have a lot of trouble in your life. This is a fallen world. There's going to be, Satan is going to be after you. The enemy is going to tempt you towards things. There's going to be hard things that I bring for the good of discipline into your life. He doesn't sidestep that. He says, there's going to be real trouble, but I want you to understand one thing. I've overcome the world. That's what he tells his people. In the day of trouble, Jesus reminds us what he accomplished on the cross. And what he continues to do in our lives over and over, over the power of sin and darkness. Our king is not one who has been defeated. Our lives at times feel that way, but our king is not one who has been defeated. This is so important, you remember, in your low moments, in your fears, in your troubles, in your cancer diagnoses, in your loss of job, in your child's waywardness, all of these things. Our king has not been defeated. He says, you will have trouble. You will have serious troubles in your life, but you have to know the peace of Christ. In this world, you'll have it, but take heart, I've overcome it. He did not say there, note this, he did not say, I will overcome it. He says, I have overcome it. I have been victorious in that. This is so important. I had a, a friend give me 
Um, many of you may or may not know, a uh, friend gave me the, the book of Stephen Curtis Chapman, um, his kind of autobiography between heaven and the real world, and I started reading it, and as I read it, I, I couldn't put it down. I, I don't know if you know the whole story, but Stephen Curtis Chapman, a Christian music artist, had lost his daughter. Um, his son came home to their family home and had actually run her over with the car, and they had lost one of their adopted daughters from China. And he just writes real, raw, honest truths about here's a guy that's been singing the gospel for years and encouraging believers, and now him and his wife, their hearts just being ripped out from them. Their son has been part of this tragedy. They don't know if he's ever going to be able to live again. And through that story, I would encourage you to read the book. It's just a good book. Through that story, they dealt with anger and depression and darkness, and their marriage was struggling, and they were honest about that. And they, at one point, decided they could not live in their house the way it was anymore. Every time they drove up that driveway, it was a painful reminder of what had happened there in that accident. And so they ended up um, rebuilding that house. But what was interesting, when they knocked down the house, they, they showed a picture of their family, and they had spray-painted the words on this wall of this bedroom before it had gotten knocked down. It said, the enemy had, has been defeated. That was kind of the climax of what they were saying. In all of their pain and anguish, that was their hope. This isn't the enemy's finally been defeated and we, we've finally been healed and we're finally ready to go. This is a truth that they held on to, sometimes could barely grip, but they held on to it. God held on to it for them in many ways. The enemy has been defeated. They were reminded of Jesus' high and victorious position through this entire trial. Friends, we do not have to go out to slay the devil. That is not the church's mission. Many of us as believers, I need to go and slay the devil. It's been done. We need to protect ourselves from the lies, for sure, attack of those that things he will tell us that are untrue, so many believers, though, exhaust themselves, and I will say exhaust themselves because they think they need to go slay the enemy under their own power. So many do it. So many seek to just do it. I need to attack this. I need to kill it. And friends, there is a reality of crucifying sin in our flesh, but know that Christ has already done it. He is the victor. The Christian life in a world is battle, but its outcome has already been determined. The real battle that we have is with the faith in that. Do we believe it? That Christ is truly the overcomer, which is why we are given these two gifts for what God has asked us to do. And so I want to just close by summarizing because I want you to hear the words of verse 13 and 33. These two verses as if they were given to gifts to you with tags on them, with little reminders. And here are the tags. John 16, 13. When the Spirit this gift, the truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in truth. Two promises here. The spirit will guide you in truth, and the spirit will declare to you the promises of God. As if those sit on that little tag for this gift. The spirit will guide you in truth, and he will declare to you the promises of God. And then Jesus gives him himself as a gift in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. As if these two little sentences are like tags 
It's written on the tag of the gift. Two promises. You will have trouble. He's not going to sidestep that. People that say, why, why is it like this? Jesus said it would be. But the second, he is victorious over that trouble. Friends, we do not stand at the end of the day and say, we will overcome. I know we sang that in that sense, but we don't say, we overcome. We say, we shout, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. That's a reference there in Revelation 21, 1 through 6. We see that. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne of from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and the death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. That is our victor who says, I have finished the work on the cross. You can anticipate my return and I am one day going to wipe away every tear and every trouble from this world. That is what we long for. If you do not know Christ today, that is what you can hope for and place your hope in. If you put these two things together, just a summary, you get these things. Number one, truth will guide you in your troubles. I implore you to go to God's word, to pray in the spirit, in the name of Jesus, that he will guide you in truth as you experience trials. And the second thing is this, the declaration of the promises of God in Jesus Christ will be your victory. Whatever you are facing or will face, these two two things are true. Truth will be your guide and you need it when the enemy comes to deceive. We need it in our anxiety and our discouragement. We need it when we just feel. We need it in our troubles. And it will guide. The Spirit will lead. I do not mean that we go around naming and claiming things, but I know that all of, the God, all of God's promises in this book, all of them are yes in Christ Jesus. They are all victorious in his name. So friends, whatever you are facing, there is hope and Jesus is his name. Whatever brings you sadness today, there is joy, and Jesus is his name. Whatever is exhausting you, and some of that can be just simple tiredness in physical ways, there is rest, and Jesus is his name. Whatever is imprisoning you, whatever has bondage over you, there is freedom, and Jesus is his name. Whatever you think is winning, there is victory. In Jesus is his name. Let's pray. I want to leave you with these words from the book of 1 John chapter 5. It says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. If you need to know more about what it looks like to trust in Christ by faith, find me afterwards or one of the elders. But I give you this charge. Have a blessed day. Go in peace. You are sent out on mission.